Welcome to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, ah, to be Peter. In the history of questions, he hit the jackpot last weekend in his response to Christ's question, Who do you say that I am? While all the other disciples were quick to respond with answers as to what other people thought about the identity of the one whom they had the privilege to call Master, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, Peter outshined them all with his answer, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. With no hesitation and firm resolve, Peter utters a confession that no one in the history of humanity up to that point would have ever dreamed possible. The Son of God had become the Son of Man. And for his conviction, Peter hears some of the most precious words ever heard by human ears. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We spent a great deal of time examining the significance of this passage last week, gaining what we may boil down to three main insights. First, in reading the passage along with Saints Augustine and John Chrysostom, we found that Peter is called the rock in a derivative sense. In homily 124 on the Gospel of John, Augustine teaches us that it is as though Christ says to Peter, On this rock, therefore, which you have confessed, I will build my church. For the rock, Petra, was Christ, and on this foundation was Peter himself also built. For what the church is essentially in Christ, such representatively, is Peter in the rock. And in this representation, Christ is to be understood as the rock, Peter as the church. Christ, therefore, is the rock upon which the church, the body of Christ, is built. And Peter's confession of faith is the rock which sustains the life of the church by maintaining her connection to her head, Christ. Consequently, by virtue of his confession and mission, Peter finds his identity as the rock. For, uttering his confession of faith unites him to Christ, and out of that unity flourishes Peter's missionary identity to care for the members of the body of Christ on earth, to edify them, to build them up, and to be her servant leader in carrying out the work of bringing healing to the human family by the forgiveness of sins. Our second and third points derive directly from this discussion. The second being that we find our truest identity and purpose in life just as Peter did, in relationship with Christ, founded on our faith in Him. Third, only the church, precisely as the presence of Christ on earth, has the power to bring healing to the human family, both through her sacramental power and through the working of each individual member 
whose gifts have been given especially to them to fulfill an irreplaceably unique role in the body. In terms of our growth as human creatures created in the image of God, it is crucial that we understand and live our lives in light of this discussion. And this because only in Christ do we become what we have been created to be, both as individuals and as a family. The human family, and each member of it, was created by God to spend eternity in loving communion with Him, through, with, and in the Son. Thus, in paragraph 778 of the Catechism, the Church teaches, The Church is both the means and the goal of God's plan, prefigured in creation, prepared for in the Old Covenant, founded by the words and actions of Jesus Christ, fulfilled by His redeeming cross and His resurrection. The Church has been manifested as the mystery of salvation by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. She will be perfected in the glory of heaven as the assembly of all the redeemed of the earth. Consequently, there is simply no you, me, or that other guy over there apart from Christ. Likewise, any human community established apart from Christ is bound ultimately to slip through the cracks of time, for it lacks the one key ingredient which sustains life individually and communally, the love that is our God. For through Christ all things were made, as St. John writes in his famous prologue, and without him was not anything made that was made. And only in him do we live, move, and have our being, as St. Paul tells us in the Acts of the Apostles. Human life this side of eternity, then, is a journey to life, a journey of growth that flourishes in loving communion with God and neighbor. This is precisely the reason God repeatedly commands throughout salvation history that we must love God above all things and our neighbor as ourselves. Not because he stands to gain anything by it, but because we do. Ultimately, this is the only way we can truly live. When the captain and Tennille sang, love will keep us together, they were right. But human love will not and cannot keep us together. Only divine love has the power to unite the diverse body that is the human family and empower the growth of each of its members to perfection. It is this process of growth that comes joyfully and painfully into focus in our readings for today. The opening line from our Gospel reading for today from the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel ties back to our reading from last weekend. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Before going on, there are a couple important things to note here that will give us some perspective. First, notice the language of times passing in this verse from that time on. The reference here is to the episode of Peter's confession. We really don't know how long it has been since then. All we know is that this is the next episode of the journey of Jesus and his disciples, which the Holy Spirit inspired the sacred writer to share with us. The previous verse is also important, as it refers to the famous messianic secret theme so prominent in the Gospel of Mark and that Matthew picks up and utilizes more subtly. There, after Peter's confession of Jesus as Christ, the Son of the living God, we are told that Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Our first response might be the question, why? Why doesn't Jesus want his disciples to tell anyone that he is the Christ? The first verse of our passage for today gives us a hint, but once again, as was the case last weekend, it will be Peter's response that cracks the code. Upon hearing that Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and on the third day be raised, 
Peter is quick to exercise his newly proclaimed leadership role among the disciples. He does so by taking our Lord aside and rebuking him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. This is a scene we can easily imagine. It happens all the time at dinner parties, family gatherings, and in offices around the world. The boss or a particularly boisterous family member or dinner guest says something that just shocks the room, but no one really knows how to respond, all acting as though the air hasn't just been sucked out of the room. Later on, at a more opportune moment, someone takes this person aside and asks, Do you realize what you just said in there? Are you out of your mind? Why would you say something like this? This is essentially what Peter is asking Christ here. You're God. You're not going to die. You're the Messiah. You have come to sit on the throne of David, to restore the kingdom of Israel. Why would you say something like this? And there we have it. This is precisely why Jesus had told the disciples why they must not tell anyone that he was the Christ. The people really had no idea what it meant for the Son of God to become incarnate, nor how it was that he would bring healing to the human family. And when Jesus did begin to tell them, they were shocked and scandalized, as Peter's response makes obvious. And who could really blame them? They had left everything to follow Christ, and now he was telling them where exactly they were following him too, not to a glorious restoration of the kingdom of Israel, which was what the people expected the Messiah to accomplish, where they would sit at the right and left of his throne. Rather, they were following him to death and a stone-cold tomb. Who among us, wouldn't have wanted to say exactly what Peter said. Ah, to be Peter. Called blessed just a few short sentences ago, he now hears some of the hardest words that human ears have ever had to listen to. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not on the side of God, but of men. Jesus says to him rather sharply. From here, things quickly fall apart. You see, our Lord knows how his motley crew of disciples works. Peter is the spokesman. If the group has something on their mind, he is generally the one to speak up, as we have seen in these last two episodes. Consequently, Jesus knows that if this is something on Peter's mind, the rest of them are more than likely thinking and talking about it as well. Recall, as mentioned at the beginning, we don't really have any idea how long Jesus had been instructing the disciples concerning these matters. In fact, it is entirely possible that they had concluded as a group that something must be said to Jesus and the task fell to Peter, as spokesman, to confront him about it. Now, picture the group of disciples as they watched Peter be upbraided. They probably did what most of us do when something extremely uncomfortable happens in public. This is like a child being scolded publicly by their parents. Everyone around acts as if nothing is going on, painfully trying to make small talk or draw attention to anything else in the entire world except for what is going on in front of them until the moment passes and everything returns to normal. But our Lord does not stop here. Knowing Peter is carrying out his role as group spokesman, Jesus turns to them all and says, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? We will turn to examine these most important words of our Lord in a moment, but let's first try and identify with the disciples a bit more. Among the chief misunderstandings of those who make the decision to intentionally follow Christ is that life will somehow become easier. 
This is the sense one gets from tele-evangelists. Just accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and everything will be A-OK. But this isn't the gospel Jesus preaches and embodies. Jesus makes no such promises. In fact, the exact opposite is true. By worldly standards, the life of discipleship is hard precisely because it is a life of continual death in the form of self-denial. Why is this necessarily the case? Well, before we commit ourselves to living the gospel, we have accumulated a lot of baggage. We can put this negatively and say that we have lost a lot of who we were created to be. Thus, the process of discipleship is one of healing, and as with many medical techniques, healing comes by way of pain. To put it more positively, we can think of it in terms of building muscle. Anyone who exercises knows that making progress involves pain, fatigue, and soreness. No pain, no gain. The life of discipleship is like this. It is a way of little deaths that is simultaneously a way of little resurrections. For with each death of some illusory part of our life, true life and spiritual strength or virtue replaces it. But the same holds in the life of discipleship as in the gym. No pain, no gain. Let's take Peter for an example. What is it that Jesus rebukes him for? Fear? Perhaps. Ignorance? Likely. But over and above either of these, Jesus is rebuking Peter's pride. Peter, along with the rest of the disciples, thinks he knows more than Jesus does. He thinks he knows a better way. And how often don't we do the same, fellow sinners? How often don't we make excuses for the little lies we tell? How often don't we make excuses for our vices, or worse, try and pass our vices off as virtues? How often don't we seek the pleasures of this world, wealth, fame, and fortune, even in the smallest ways, by buying some gadget or extra article of clothing that we really don't need and whose worth could instead have been invested in something really worth the price, our fellow human being in need? All of these things and countless more are little and big ways of looking at our God and saying, I know better. And in this, we, as Peter, succumb to the temptation of the original sin, to define ourselves and our lives in our own terms and not on God's. This, fellow sinners, is the work of pride. Christ's challenge for us today is nothing more than the challenge of discipleship. From the Christian perspective, it is the challenge of being human. For, as opposed to finding a stable spot to call our own, a place of comfort, where we set the rules of the game. Our God calls us to grow and flourish as creatures created in His image. And the only way to grow as human creatures is to grow closer to God, to participate more fully in His life. Along these lines, in his work on perfection, St. Gregory of Nyssa writes, In truth, the finest aspect of our mutability is the possibility of growth and good, and this capacity for improvement transforms the soul as it changes more and more into the divine. What Gregory is saying here is that our finest quality is the ability to die the little deaths required to pass from one degree of glory to another as we are more perfectly conformed to the God who we image, as St. Paul tells us in his second letter to the Corinthians. Yes, our finest quality as human creatures is the ability to change. But this change, if it is to be for the good, can only take place with the aid of grace. And the first virtue grace produces in us is always humility, which St. Augustine associates with the Holy Spirit's gift of the fear of the Lord. 
We only begin growing in Christ by way of humility. For only the virtue of humility gives us the spiritual strength necessary to let our pride and every false aspect of ourselves it creates die. Humility opens the door for growth in our lives because it enables us to be meek, to be teachable and docile to the action of grace in our lives, continually prompting us to grow in love. That is what our Lord is telling his disciples and us today in saying, Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says to us, Learn how to love as I love. Learn to give of yourself as I do. For my gift of self gives life to the world, and united to me, yours does as well. Here we find a scriptural basis for a theological anthropology. For by telling us that to lose one's life for his sake is to save it, Christ is teaching us what it means to live as one created in the image and likeness of God. And what does that mean at bottom? It means participatory imitation of the Son of God's life, who from all of eternity is begotten of the Father and responds to the Father in Eucharistic love, in a complete gift of self, in thanksgiving for the love the Father gives to him. This is what Paul teaches us when he says in chapter 1 of Colossians that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. My friends, today we hear Christ call us to a life of discipleship, a life which loves all things in thanksgiving to the Father as the source of all being. In doing so, Jesus calls us to live a Eucharistic life, a life which is a complete gift of self in loving thanksgiving for the life and love we have received first in being born and then in being reborn through the saving waters of baptism. This Eucharistic life is not confined to a building of worship or to an hour on Sunday. It is to be lived with every word we utter and every deed we perform. It is a life characterized by the virtues born of charity, first and foremost, the virtue of humility. Only this life is life to its fullest for the human creature, and by living it, we bring new life to the world. Yes, as Peter and the disciples, we will have setbacks and fall short from time to time. But our Lord never tires of loving us back onto our feet. And if we cooperate with His grace, He will see the good work of salvation begun in us to its end in eternal happiness. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.